This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, it's a turnaround Tuesday, but on this Tuesday, the market is turning down. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Money Bee Podcast here on a Tuesday in New York City. Paul and Stephen in the studio with you with Chris Dietrich and James McIntosh, who, who I think secretly wants to move to New York from London because he's still here. He was here last week. He's here this week. I think he wants to stay. I think he, he loves America. You love America now? Anything to be paid in dollars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't give me the North Atlantic peso. That's the only thing I say. Sorry, GBP, the Great British peso. <laughs> uh, interesting afternoon, gentlemen. Right, interesting day, really. I mean, big sell-off here in the stock market in the U.S. Uh, you know, the, look b- between what's been going on in the bond and the and the pound markets over in the U.K. You know, there there's a lot going on in all the the capital markets so let's kind of dive in let's take a look um what do we what do we think is is going on here right now i think one thing that's going on certainly is this concern that everything has become to the point where it's overvalued and you can see that reflecting now when there's a sell-off where today is a good example where stocks are selling off at the same time that the 10 years selling off you see that in other assets too and that's really been the case in recent weeks um James, you did a you know a nice piece about this you know, so-called switcheroo, where everything that was popular earlier this year, whether it's gold, whether it's high dividend stocks, bonds have all basically rolled over here at the same time. So there's there's a lot of interplay going on, and um, you know this if you're looking for diversification in your portfolio, you might not have noticed in the first half of this year that everything was going up, but lo and behold, now everything's going down, um, and it seems like it's going to be a continuation here in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that this is absolutely spot on, and it makes it very, very hard for people who are trying to hedge. You've got your sixty forty portfolio, thinking your equities will do well, and you'll be hedged in the bad times by your bonds. But at the moment, you do badly on both sides, and that hurts a lot. Yeah, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit because the column you did earlier this week, you had kind of jumped into the market and talked about a couple of companies specifically. Yeah, this is interesting. Which is, yeah, yeah, I want so, you to tell so us about that. at the top level, at the top level, the market was up in the first half, and it was up, uh, well, up till today anyway. It was doing pretty well in the in the second half of the year as well, uh, the the S and P at least. When you look below the surface, there's been this huge amount of paddling going on that the the guys who did well in the first half have done very badly in the second half. So, um, I mean, I picked out two stocks as examples, which were the company that had the best performance mm-hmm. in the S&P, which was Newmont, um, and then the company which had the best performance in the second half, which was almost the exact opposite. So Newmont's a gold miner. This is the the archetype of bad times safety gold goes up your gold miners obviously go up as well um and exactly the opposite happened in the second half which is seagate is the the best you know they make you know kind of old technology new technology as it were they're they're kind of the old it um they were very very cheap they were in fact became a value play and activists came in and they've been the best performance in the second half but they were i think it was 497th Wow. Um, in the S&P in wow. the first half. And Newmont is now uh, in, you know, 480th in the S&P in the second half. So you've had this massive switch over. And now these are two stocks, of course, you can always say, well, stocks do all sorts of stuff. Sure. They're all over the place. 
But this isn't just about the stocks. This is about everything. So if you look at sectors, the same is true, that it was the utilities, the safety, the consumer staples that were doing well in the first half. In the second half, it's the exact opposite, that those guys are being sold off. And it's the you know, nice IT, high-tech stuff, um, the uh, economically sensitive stuff, the inflation-sensitive stuff. How, well. how much of that do we attribute to not just Brexit, but primarily Brexit in terms of it representing this sort of uh, unexpected shock and this this big fear factor because there was a lot of anxiety. Actually, it wasn't that much anxiety. There was a lot of other anxiety for the, the beginning of the year. We had a big sell-off in, the, in January, February. But it just seemed like after Brexit and the world didn't end, the market mentality kind of changed. Yeah, I mean, the timing I, I, fits. The timing yeah. fits. But if it, was, if it was about fear, it's a little odd because why did you – so after Brexit, you stopped being scared after the Brexit. Right. After, that doesn't quite fit to me. Um, right. I mean, so the question feels, is what, so, what did drive so, it? Well, I think it's this switch in the bond market that we've had globally, which is in part led by the Japanese, who's an obvious place to look. Um, the idea that we're going fiscal, that the politics has changed. So in that sense, the UK contributed some because the UK has been kind of the most obvious place where there's been a gigantic political change from Mm -hmm. being free markets to suddenly hating the international elite sort of in public, um, which is is kind of scary, but um, is a a really big switch over. Um, So... And, you know, you've had the idea from lots of people that maybe Japan will also start to go a bit more fiscal. You've had in the U.S., obviously, in the election, it looks, you will, whoever wins, this kind of more right, fiscal, right. Both um, of them more infrastructure. And, and the central well, banks are begging for it. Well, you also had the, you know, at the, I think also if you looked at the Fed, you know, you had that moment where are they going to raise and then you had the bad made jobs report. Everyone freaked out about yeah. the economy. But in July... The economy, you know, the labor market rebounded strongly and kept rebounding in August. So I think that was like, you know, you had this Goldilocks scenario to keep using that phrase in the U.S. at least, where people were like, the economy's not falling off the cliff and we're the Fed's not going to be raising rates um, until probably the end of the year. And it was that day, July the 8th, that the Treasury market turned around, that bonds really, you know, set their low for the year so far at least let's hope it stays the low for the year um, and that obviously pushes people to say well actually if the economy is doing well we were really panicking I mean you know some of the the returns that you would have made if you'd bought you could have made more than 60% if you just bought and held the longest dated Japanese bond you know these are insane sorts of numbers to be making from supposedly rock solid safe assets yeah and you wonder you look at the bond yields uh, they have moved up you know they're still historically and relatively speaking very low but for what they've been just within this year, they've moved up dramatically in, in the last month or so. And l- looking at what's just what's happening today, Dow down more than 200 points. S&P, I think, was down about 25 when we came into the studio. You know, sizable sell-offs. Is the stock market now just being squeezed by what's happening in other markets? Is it being led by the nose? Or is this about the stock market? Well, it seems, you know, to, to your to James's point earlier, where we're, we're sort of seemingly getting to this point where the conversation is really shifting to fiscal. There was a strategist from from Bank of America, Merrill, that is talking last week about peak liquidity, which potentially means, you know, that the central banks are the trade that you're always going to go with the central banks, you know, could be changing here. And that means lower potential returns for stocks and bonds moving forward. So it does seem a little bit to me like stocks are beholden to kind of what's going on, um, 
in the bond market, but the bigger question is sort of like, well, where do we go from here? It's been so, it's been, you know, the rising tide lifts everything for so long that, that maybe there's this sense that that's changing. All right, let's leave it there. Because we're going to answer that question, everybody, but we're going to answer it on the other end of this important message. Hey, this is Stephen Perlberg from the WSJ Media Mix podcast. Are you interested in the biggest changes in the media and advertising business from Facebook to Snapchat? Tune into the WSJ Media Mix podcast for interviews with some of the biggest names in media, from Gawker CEO Nick Denton to Turner President David Levy. For more, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast on a Tuesday afternoon here in New York City. And, folks, for more great podcasts, you can check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. A lot to choose from. Your Money Matters, Free For All, Speakeasy, WSJ Opinion, What's News, Heard on the Street, the Tech News Briefing, and, of course, the Money Beat Podcast. We are on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and your Google Play Music app. And we left you with uh, Chris Dietrich asked the question, what happens next? And I said we would answer that. Uh, I, I may have overpromised. I, I may have lied a little bit about that, uh, I have to admit there, because if we could actually answer that, the four of us would be running a hedge fund in Connecticut. We would not be sitting in a studio in New York City talking about this as journalists. But l- let's at least try to answer it, because I think – it's it's very interesting to see this sell-off today after a month of, you know, I know the market was generally higher, but it was really very choppy, too. I mean, there was a lot of range-bound trading. There didn't seem to be a lot of direction going on. People just kind of holding their breaths to see what, what way the sort of macro trends are going to break. And now, you know, I, I look at this today, and, and these levels that the market tested in September and bounced off them are starting to come back into view it's going to be very interesting to see if, if the S&P trades below 2150, really below 2140 and 2120, you're going to start to see people get more nervous, I think, and start wondering what's going to come next. Because, look, GDP is not going to be accelerating. Profit growth, you know, we talked about it earlier, may eke out a positive number, may not, but that is not going to be a big number. There is not a big natural, in, in my opinion at least, there is not a big natural sort of spark that you could expect to come up that would drive the stock market higher. But you could have said that at any point in how many years now? Right, exactly. But and, – and the fallback was always what Chris was talking about before, the Fed, the central banks, liquidity, peak liquidity. So all these questions that were uncomfortable but that we could kind of just brush off because you had the Fed at your back, maybe you don't have that now. The Fed's still there. We don't know if they're moving in December. The Fed has made these promises before, so I'm, yeah. in, the, I'm in the wait and see. Um, I think there are also big questions. I mean, obviously, there's the election, but also the BOJ and you know the ECB um, and what they're you know they're, they're going to be doing as well to really see where the markets are going. I mean, it's it's a, it, it is a difficult. But well, you know, I know you're trying to be calm, Gross, because maybe you're trying to to balance me out. You know, but we have been talking about this, and James, I'm sure they've been talking about this too on, on your side of the pond. People have been wondering about central banks and the limits of monetary policy. They have been afraid that central banks have reached their limits, and that is only going that 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 chorus, that cry, that fear is only going to get louder from this point out. I well, I think. Well, except that people have thought that they've been at their limits as well. I mean, you remember when we hit the when we hit the the actual limit, the zero limit. Right. It turned out it wasn't a limit, right? So, you know. But I mean, but they hated it. 
Well, they, they, went to z- yeah. they went negative, and, and people yeah. hated it, absolutely hated it, freaked not them in, out. Not in Europe, remember that. So Switzerland went negative, no one took any notice. Sweden went negative, no one took any notice. Europe went negative, no one took any notice for a year until Japan went negative yeah. when it stopped working. And they, Japan, of course, is the one that's been the most out there and has done the most. And, you know, it, it hasn't worked for Japan, right? They yeah. haven't managed to create any inflation, probably because frankly they didn't do it for so many years that everyone's got completely locked into this mindset that there's no inflation plus you know everyone's getting old so you know they're a bit different but people have people have said oh negative rates don't work because they haven't worked in japan which is slightly different because japan is the one where if anywhere is going to run out of monetary policy room it's japan but in fact they've come out and done another load of things I mean, it's, if you go through the list, Bernanke gave this great speech back in 2002 where he lectured Japan on what they should do. Yes, yes, I um, remember it. You know, not to have any not ego or anything. But, yeah. Yeah. but he, you know, he went through this big list. And if you go through, it looks like they've ticked the things off. Okay, there's only one thing left now. They've, tick, they've finally, in the last meeting, they ticked off his suggestion that they should put a cap on long-term rates. And that's the, that was the final, the penultimate thing on his list. The final thing is helicopter money. And they insist they won't do that. So if they really won't do helicopter money, then Japan is at the limit of monetary policy or close to. I mean, they can buy a few more bombs, but they've got to go fiscal is the next thing. Right. And And they've set it up so they can go fiscal, right? They've said 10-year yield's going to stay at zero no matter what. So if that is an invitation to the government to say, hey, let's go and spend a load of money, right? We can borrow at zero. Why not? Right. You know, I mean, I don't know what else is is an invitation to do that. Yeah. It just seems like, you know, whether or not the central banks are sort of reaching their limit, and, th- and that's a sort of a debate that's happening, I think, at a high level, maybe more immediately, if you're just sort of an ordinary investor here in the U.S. and you look at your statement and you're like, gosh, you know, I thought I had a 60-40 that was supposed to, and everything's going down, it seems like there's a lot of concern that, that there is just going to be um, selling of everything that you own. And there was an interesting stat that I saw yesterday that, the relationship between the 10-year and the S&P 500 is the highest it's been on sort of a very specific measure in a decade. So, I mean, you, Meaning what exactly? Meaning that... They're um, moving in tandem. Yeah, stocks yeah. and bonds are moving in tandem, and you expect them to do the opposite. How about cats and dogs? Cats and dogs living together, up is down. Um, yeah. But so remember, any, this is a recent thing. It is so a recent thing. If you go back to the... Sorry, I mean that our belief that they should move in opposite directions is a relatively recent thing. They've gone through periods of correlation in the past. So, in a sense, you could say, well, if we were moving back towards a stagflationary era, maybe that would be maybe that would be a good justification for this. Because in you know in stagflation, it's it's pretty terrible for everything. So that would be nasty. Oh, and coincidentally, the oil price is up, guys. <laughs> um, are higher rates good or bad for the market? Depends why. Never reason from a price change. Depends on your point of view, what you're looking to get out of it. No, no, it depends oh, no. why they went up. Oh, it depends on why they went up. Oh, so if, I see they went up I see if, they, if, if rates go up because right. the economy is doing better, right. then that's good for the stock market because you look through the higher rates, the, the discount mm-hmm. rate you value your stock at, but the profits go up faster than the discount rate, so that's fine. Um, if rates go up because the central bank says, we don't care about the economy, we're going to kill inflation, go back to you know 1980, that's really bad, right, in the short run. But can become a good thing in the long run if you if your inflation is very high, can be a very bad thing if your inflation is very low. So mm-hmm. if they came in now and said, "Look, we're just fed up with this whole thing. Tough. We're going to go to go to four percent rates because we think rates should be four percent," that would be disastrous for the stock market. Yeah. So sorry. So so why are they going up now? 
well, the economy is doing fine. The U.S. economy is fine, right? You've got, you, I mean, I'm not saying it's great, yeah. but you know, you've got virtually, I mean, unemployment at five percent. You've got, uh, you know, full capacity utilization. Um, these things are these certainly things are in, not this, in this studio. We do have full capacity utilization. Yeah, you could fit one more in there. We might be able to fit <laughs> one more in there. We have, we have, right? In fact, all Our right. Uh, round table is we, like we actually people. we actually have. Speaking of capacity utilization, we actually have it hard out, so we're going to have to leave it there. James McIntosh, Chris Diedrich, Stephen Grosser, Paul Vigna. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.